I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Welcome everyone to the LRB uh, Bookshop tonight for an evening of poems and discussion. We will, as you probably have uh, come to suspect, be discussing the topic of race and reviewing tonight, um, which is one that's both important and very close to the hearts of many of you in this room, I know. Um, welcome back for those of you who joined us at last year's event at Bush House. Thank you for your ongoing support. Um, and the rest of you, welcome to the, to the conversation. We're delighted to have you here. Um, the evening is going to fall into two halves. So we'll have a panel discussion, um, followed by a reading um, and then wine afterwards. Um, in a moment, I'm going to hand you over to my co-organiser Sandeep Palmer, who'll set the scene a bit more and introduce our illustrious panel um, to you. But first, I should probably say a few words about the Ledbury Emerging Critics Scheme that's brought us all together here. Um, Since it was founded in 2017 by Sandeep and I, the Ledbury Emerging Critics has really been making waves. Article by article, our critics... Our BAME critics are changing the culture, and that's an amazing thing to see happening before our eyes. Um, our, our hope for the scheme was to, to try to push the critical discussion in this country towards greater diversity, but also greater awareness and sophistication around questions of race. Um, and the new generation of BAME critical voices who are ranged around this room, and I hope will be chipping in later to the discussion, have been doing exactly that. So our existing eight emerging critics from the first round of the programme are Jiffa Benson, Mary Jean Chan, Jade Cuttle, Sarala Estruk, Mar- Mariam Hasawi. Um, Nasa Hussein, Shristi Krishnamurti Kavel, and Jennifer Lee Tsai. And tonight we have the great pleasure of welcoming a second round of four new critics into the fold. Um, they are Victoria Adukwebuli, Joanna Lee, Stephanie uh, Sikir, and Sarah Jean Zubair. Um, earlier today, all of us got together for a series of workshops, so the um, lively debate has already been flowing freely for us and um, will continue here tonight, I know. We also have numbers to start to quantify the change 
that these critics are making happen. Um, so on your chairs, along with various other bits of paper, um, I think a feedback form, that's important, um, uh, you have a technicolour, <laughs> glorious copy of our report, newly published today, um, which gives us an updated picture of BAME representation in poetry reviewing across various major outlets, uh, magazines and newspapers in the UK and Ireland. Um, it's been compiled by um, our stalwart supporter, Dave Coates, under the auspices of Liverpool University's Centre for New and International Writing. Um, and Dave has carefully crunched the numbers and laid them out for us uh, going back to 2011. I'd really encourage you to dive further into these statistics. They're multi-layered and absolutely fascinating. Um, but just to f- pull out our headline figure... In the last two years, the total number of BME poetry reviewers writing for national publications has doubled. So from 2011 to 2016, the proportion of critics of colour publishing reviews stood at 3.7%. Whereas from 2017 to 18, that figure now stands at 8.3%. And it looks um, like... Much of that change has happened thanks to the work of programmes like the Complete Works and also the Ledbury Scheme. Its alumni are really, really changing the face of poetry criticism in the UK and Ireland. Um, so we'd like to thank all the me- mentors, critics and poets who've given their time and their love and their sweat to the scheme over the last two years our amazing advisory board, of which Kaya was a part, um, and also Chloe Garner of the Ledbury Festival and Becky Fincham, um, who is a spearhead of our activism. Um, and if you'd like to share some of what happens in the discussion tonight um, on social media, please do use the hashtag race and reviewing um, as you tweet. And now I'll hand you over to Sandeep to get the evening started. so much, Sarah, and thank you all for coming. It's so wonderful to see so many uh, critics, supporters, um, editors, old people who kind of in some way or another have um, intersected with the program and supported um, all of our critics as well, and people who feel very passionately, as we do, about the issues that underlie the scheme and why we decided to start it. Um, As Sarah said, we had a, a wonderful long day of workshops with our 12 critics now, Um, And some of the discussions that we had, I think, um, speak to not just the numbers, which we're really obviously focused on and thinking about how we can increase the amount um, of representation of critics of color in kind of mainstream national papers and magazines, but also the slightly more subtle questions. So one of the things um, that I think we'll do today in the panel is sort of to carry on those conversations with all of you um, to set the scene I suppose that um, Sarah and I really became aware of the disparity because of Dave's statistics, of course, but also an awareness that the ways in which poets of color were being reviewed in this country um, was not just that they were not being reviewed very much, but that when they were reviewed, the language that was sometimes being used um, or the ways in which their work was being qualified had less perhaps to do with the work itself often and sometimes more to do with their identity. Um, So part of what Sarah said as well is one of the things that we're really hoping to do is to 
broaden the conversation about what we value um, and how we talk about the work that we do. And, and I know that the panel will have much to say about this. Um, I guess the other thing that we should bear in mind, perhaps, is um, an awareness that poetry criticism is something that we should all value, fight for, um, and read, of course, um, reviews in papers, but also in, um, in magazines. And that that's, those spaces are actually decreasing as well, um, particularly in some of the more high-profile publications. So as much as we love poetry and love poets, we have to also recognize that critics play a really important role in the way that we think about um, what we value and what we, what we hold dear in terms of poetry in this country. So I'm going to introduce our panel. I'm so delighted um, that they could all be here. Um, and then they will speak for about five minutes, um, sort of around the idea of race uh, reviewing and from their own experiences as well. Um, and then we'll have some time for questions too. So first we have um, Parul Segel. Uh, she is a book critic at the New York Times. She was previously a columnist and senior editor at the New York Times Book Review. Her work has appeared in the Atlantic, Slate, Book Forum, The New Yorker, Ten House, and The Literary Review, among other publications. And she has been featured a featured speaker at TED and teaches at New York University. Her role's essay, reviews and essays devote a critical acuity and imagination to both the language of the review and the work being discussed. As Parle said recently in an interview with the novelist Teju Cole, quote, when you're writing in a particular space and with a particular word count, I think it feels like the review is a sonnet to me. It feels like it has a form. It feels like when I'm in it, the same way for you when you're in your column, you have a sense not only of what you want to say, but where you are in time when you're saying it. You can hear it. You can score it. I keep coming back to the idea of the review and what it has in common with the sonnet in terms of its rigidity, in terms of its playfulness, especially a newspaper review, which is supposed to serve so many masters. It should speak to people that know something about the topic. It should speak to people who know nothing about the topic. So we're very grateful to have Parul for coming all this way from New York to be with us tonight. Um, we'll also hear from Kayo Chingonyi. Kayo is a fellow of the Complete Works Program for Diversity and Quality in British Poetry and the author of two pamphlets, Some Bright Elegance and The Color of James Brown's Scream. His first full-length collection, Kimikanda, was published in June 2017 by Chato and Windus and went on to win the Dylan Thomas Prize and a Somerset Mom Award. He was awarded the Jeffrey Dermer Prize and has completed residencies with Kingston University, Cove Park, First Story, the Nuffield Council on Bioethics, and the Royal Holloway University of London in partnership with CounterPoint Arts. He was associate poet at the Institute of Contemporary Arts from autumn 2015 to spring 2016, Anthony Burgess Fellow at Manchester University in 2018, and co-edited co issue 62 of Magma Poetry and the autumn 2016 edition of the Poetry Review. He is now poetry editor for The White Review. Kaya was also an MC, producer, and DJ, and regularly collaborates with musicians and composers, both as a poet and a lyricist. Kaya is also a very valued advisor to the Ledbury Critics Scheme. In Kaya's 2014 essay, um, Worrying the Bloodline of British Poetry, Notes on Inheritance and alter Alterity, he writes, 
This tendency to foreground the racial identity of non-white poets, subordinating the substance of their writing, is still worryingly common in literary criticism. The most troublesome consequence of this is that it preserves a literary culture in which poets of color face a double bind. Either they imitate the predominantly white canonical writers of the literary establishment, doing a violence to part of themselves, or they write into or through their heritage and encourage a critical reading that privileges their identity. Cayo's words here certainly inspired the founding of the Lebri scheme, so we are honored that he's here with us this evening. And finally, I'm very pleased to introduce Ilya Kaminsky. Ilya was born in the Soviet, former Soviet Union, but has lived in the U.S. since 1993. He is the author of two full-length poetry collections, the multiple prize-winning Dancing in Odessa, published in 2004, and the very recently published Deaf Republic with Faber and Faber. Already, this latest collection is being praised by critics in both the U.S. and the U.K., and the book has been nominated for Best Collection in this year's Forward Prizes. He is a translator from Russian of Marina Svetaeva and Polina Barskova, and the co-editor of the Echo Anthology of International Poetry with Susan Harris. He received a Whiting Award, a Lannan Literary Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and was named a finalist for the Neustadt International Prize for Literature. His work has been translated into more than 20 languages. In 2019, Ilya will collaborate with the Ledbury Critics Emerging Scheme to launch a U.S. version of the mentorship program, which will be based at Georgia Tech University, where Ilya is a professor and director of their poetry center. So please join me in welcoming our panel. Kayo, can we begin with you? Thank you. Firstly, thank you for inviting me to be here and to be part of the advisory board. I've been admiring the work of the Critics Scheme for a while and reading your reviews and articles and essays, and it always brings me joy to see them appear in the world. Um, So I wanted to to speak about three main things, really. and that is around how we characterize diversity when we talk about um, criticism and the worlds of the literary, particularly poetry. Um, and then I wanted to talk a little bit about multilingualism and a seeming aversion to it in British poetry. Um, and then also I wanted to speak about something which is mentioned in, in the essay which Sandeep mentioned, which is um, the ways in which Criticism, as it's practiced in, a, in the predominant mode uh, in the UK, encourages a kind of critical authority which isn't trying to get at what the work is trying to do. A critical authority which measures the work against certain benchmarks of quality, and if it fails to meet those benchmarks, dismisses that work out of hand. Um, so I'm going to contend against that viewpoint. Um, so I think when we talk about... Um, diversity in criticism and in poetry and in literature, we speak often of demography, um, the fact that the avenues for publication, whether that be criticism or whether that be creative work, although criticism is creative, of course, but I mean in this case, poems or reviews or essays. Um, We talk often about how the amount of material published is not reflective of the kind of demographic 
fact um, of the UK. Um, and I think that is important. I think this census data is really important in giving us a sense of who exists within this society, to whom this society belongs, um, who has a stake in poetry being more varied. But I think also there is this sense in which um, if we rely too much on demography as it exists in the UK, we kind of fall into the trap of setting a limit for, for how many critics, how many poets we can have. So we're above the 12.9%. We're doing a good job. Let's leave it at that. Which is, I think, um, wrong-headed because, of course, in a global city like London, there is the people who live here all the time. There's the people who travel through it. And I think its culture is as much affected by that flux of culture, language, loads of things that you can through moving through London in one day, learn from the people who are just passing through it. Um, and you might assume that they live here all the time, but sometimes they don't. Um, so I'm interested in, in kind of critiquing that and pushing for something that's more representative of world culture, world demography, because we live in the world and the Anglophone literary world is massive. Um, and just as we can be broad in our reading of writing in English, so, so too should we be broad in our criticism, where the criticism comes from and the perspectives that our critics bring to that. So I want to challenge demography as the only measure of best practice and quality in commissioning work. Um, I think there are other measures for proper parity. Um, I want to lead into thinking about multilingualism as well, um, I was at Poetry International recently in Rotterdam, and I was struck by the ways in which multilingualism was just the fact of the festival running. There was a sense in which lots of people came to the festival knowing they wouldn't understand everything, but they were comfortable being in that space. Um, and I think as commissioners of essays, reviews, poems, we should be not relying on modern poetry and translation to do all the work, because they do so much of the work of publishing um, poetry and reviews and various pieces of criticism on the notion of translation and in translation. And there's no reason why other magazines, other venues, other avenues cannot do the same work. Um, and I think it's really important that they do, because yes my kind of speaking voice and the voice I think and dream in is English. But that's not to say mine is not a multilingual life. My, my life is frequently colored by Nyanja, Bemba, Spanish, French. My brother-in-law is a French citizen and we're going to his wedding and it's going to be mostly French. Um, and if that didn't come out in my work in some way, that would do a disservice to my life. And I think it does a, the same disservice when we commission in a very narrow way too. Finally, I think as readers of criticism, as critics ourselves, I think one thing we should be striving for is to try and find the spirit of the work. I have been moved and can admire work that I dislike very much because of what I see the work is trying to do. It might not be my kind of thing, might not be my flavor, but when I open myself up to seeing what the poet was trying to do or the artist or the creative person was trying to do in that work, I think that broadens the kind of conversations I can have about what I think is quality and what I think is not quality. 
And especially, I think it's damaging to it's damaging to place quality in the in the kind of column of poetry, and everything that's not quality is not poetry. I think we could stand to allow for poetry to be more broad, and to allow for poetry that we don't like, that's not to our taste, not to necessarily be bad, but just to be that, not to our taste. So those are the kinds of provocations and, and thoughts I have around race and, and reviewing culture, specifically in the UK. Thank you. Hi guys, thank you for being here and thank you for organizing this, Sandeep and Sarah. Again, this is from the depths of my jet lag and one extra glass of wine that I should not have had. Um, but So here's some of the stuff that I think about um, when it comes to race and reviewing, my only two passions. I think that it's a really, really tough time, as Sandeep has mentioned, for criticism. Um, I read one estimate that within three years, all local papers in the United States are just going to go. We're just going to have national papers. So when you think about that, you think about, are culture pages going to be valued? No. So this is a tragedy on multiple levels, not just for local art scenes or local writers. But these are the places that young critics made their bones, got their first clips, started writing. So we're going to lose an entire ecosystem that would have nurtured these young writers. And when we're thinking about where diversity ties into that, I'm grateful that Sarah mentioned that it's not just a numbers game. We're talking about the sophistication of a kind of way of talking about work, and not just work by writers of color. The thing about criticism is that criticism belongs to us. Criticism has always belonged to outsiders. Critics don't come from MFA programs. They very rarely come from programs at all. It is done by racial and geographic outsiders who can come into a place and see the dominant ideas of a culture. It fully belongs to us. So what does that mean if these places are going, right? And we're also looking at who's going to have the luxury of going freelance or going to a program where they can try to write on the side. These aren't questions that I have answers to, but I've been thinking about this being in the space today with the critics. Um, and I'm trying to think about a way that we critics can make some things for ourselves. And these can be journals. This can be a new way of discussing things. One of the great sort of um, uh, developments in the last few years where poetry is concerned in America has been seeing the rise of, of a poetry scene that is full of people of color, full of queer people. I'm talking about Kaveh Akbar, I'm talking about Fatima Askar, I'm talking about um, Dennis Smith. And it's, it doesn't feel like writers, and especially poets, feel like at the forefront of this are waiting even for the critics, the critics that don't exist, to find their work and champion their work. Because they wouldn't have, or they would have found people, again, reading them as people writing about their identity and not writing with a certain degree of style or writing against culture in myriad ways. Or trying on personas. Or just being weird. Or just, I don't know, just enjoying the full capacity of their imagination. But they've created, these writers, I feel like a very powerful and potent movement behind themselves. And I think that fiction is looking at them and trying to learn it. Nonfiction writers are trying to do it. I think that critics should too. You know, I think it's a matter of not waiting for a seat at the table, working and nurturing some of our own spaces and places for this kind of writing, and keeping it at a high bar, because that's what we can bring when it comes to writing about our own, writing about other people. The last thing I want to mention is that 
again, just cognizant of the fact that the young critics in the room, and, and as somebody who, when I was coming up, as I was describing the workshop today, was frequently sort of asked to um, review this novel by an Indian person, this novel by a Pakistani person, this novel by a Guatemalan person. It actually didn't matter. I had carte blanche. Um, because I was usually the only person of color on staff or around or in somebody's stable of reviewers. And one of the powerful messages that I got from the few older critics uh, that were around was, you have to push very ferociously to write about what you want and what you want to learn and where you want to rove. And so I think that that's something that we should keep in mind as writers, as editors in the room, as publishers in the room, to really allow and sort of sanctify that, that space for curiosity and intellectual growth. Mm. Um, for all kinds of writing. So. I want to take a moment to speak in defense of numbers simply because it's a luxury to say that numbers don't matter anymore. It means that somebody did work to make that happen. Um, in the United States right now numbers matter uh, I will only speak for the poetry side that's the side I know best um, most major newspapers and by that I mean New York Times New York Review of Books Los Angeles Times San Francisco Chronicle Chicago Tribune and so forth have at most one Pure whole group, poetry critic of color, who is on a regular basis reviewing books. So in the United States, numbers matter a lot. We are not, we don't have that luxury yet. I would like it to be so, but the United States is not in a very good place as far as poetry criticism of color goes. And that change needs to happen. So I was really uh, moved and inspired to see the kind of change that has been done here in just two years. It's really amazing. And um, we are going to try to do something like that in the U.S. as well, in Atlanta this fall. Um, but I just want to talk a little bit more also about the whole idea of Yes, of course, demographics. Yes, of course, um, various aesthetic diversity of conversation. But why don't we take a step back and ask ourselves, what is a critic to begin with? And when I, as a poet, when I think of critics, I think of great writers such as Marina Svitaeva, James Baldwin. Uh, those are great writers who are outsiders, in a society they are, and they have the clarity of perspective. They have the exactness of perspective. They have the urgency, the passion of perspective on any subject they touch because they are an outsider from the mainstream uh, situation in a given culture. So to my mind, um, that is to be treasured as well, that perspective is so valuable. And we do not want to have a society where everybody is just like everybody else. Um, we want to have this clarity, precision, and urgency. Um, what I also find really moving about the community you have created is the fact that it's a community. 
Uh, you know, as this wonderful poet you have mentioned it, Kavi Danas, uh, they're really creating a revolution in American poetry. Uh, but it's happening in poetry. Uh, it doesn't necessarily happen in criticism yet at all, right? Uh, but in poetry, we have this incredibly energetic young generation. And I put an emphasis on the word energetic because there are no writers who are not energetic. There are no boring writers. And uh, we have had a lot of boring writers in my generation, for sure. And so there is this young group that are fire. And they come in the room, and the room stands up. And um, that is so wonderful. And it would be great to have that kind of a community of energy uh, that you clearly created here. It would be nice to have it in the U.S. as well. All the critics are rock stars, yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. And you've all picked up on some really interesting and slightly overlapping issues and questions. Um, partly to do with, yes, what is the role of the critic? What is the critic supposed to do now? Um, and I guess I want to kind of maybe touch on this question of numbers and about demographics um, and how we measure. Because I, I, I sort of agree that I think that their numbers don't give us a threshold for being accepted. It's not like we've reached that number and then, like, we're fine. Um, and I very much like the idea that we should be speaking to a, a broader, you know, Anglophone world uh, or even a, a world that reads literature in translation. And we should read literature in translation. Um, but I guess I want to kind of uh, ask the question, in this moment where in the previous sort of 10 years, let's say, I mean, the Free Verse Report, the complete works have, in this country at least, really massively increased by 15% the amount of writers of color, poets of color, who are producing work. Criticism certainly hasn't matched that rise or that trend. Similarly, in the United States, poets like Dennis Smith, Kavi Akbar, all of the kind of uh, poets who, I suppose... Um, have kind of sidestepped critical culture to an extent. They don't need critics to sing their praises because they've sort of taken matters into their own hands and readerships have taken matters into their own hands. So do you think that critical culture needs to, or how might it match the, the rise of these really exciting new revolutionary forms of literature? Or, or will it just be that, you know, not necessarily social media, but something will take its place and that critics become something else. They change the way they develop I can hop in. Go on. Um, I can say that, in part, that energy that we're looking at in those poets, there weren't the kinds of critics reading their work and doing that work for them. You know, and I think that the critic will always exist. And they're really... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Should be a critic writing about their work still, even now, even now with the kind of momentum they have as a group. Where is that big essay about any of these poets? Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's like one, like there was a New Yorker online piece about Tommy Pico. Where are the big, yeah. you know, essays really wrestling with the ideas and not just the presentation, not just how glamorous these these writers are. And I think that that's what's happening a little bit. Um, and I think the critic is necessary because the critic can, the right critic can take those ideas in something that can feel very hermetic, which is a book, which is poetry, which is fashion, which is any discipline that makes people feel a little bit nervous. And this may not be for me, and can say this is absolutely for you, and I can translate this for you and bring you here. And I'm somebody who came up reading critics, you know, and I came up reading poetry critics. I came up, you know, my favorite. Writers are still critics in, in disciplines that I know very little bit about because of their incredible seduction of style. Yeah. This idea of being like, I know you're already feeling intimidated because it's a poem, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, or because it's something that you feel you're not allowed to like, or that you don't feel like you have the vocabulary to like. And I'm going to give you a vocabulary, and I'm also going to tell you to trust your instincts a little bit. So that kind of dialogue, that for me, again, this is just for me, somebody really was shaped by critics, critics growing up. Um, Is invaluable. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that writers need critics. They need champions. This yeah. is how the work does not get lost. Also, because a writer exists in his or her time, but then after the work of biographers, of criticism, of all of this sort of stuff yeah. preserves that legacy. And I wrote a piece this year about the rediscovery of of women writers, which seems to happen every couple of months. Oh, Lucia Berlin. Oh, Clarice Lispector. But nobody thinks to ask why these writers go missing. Yeah. You know, and that's because there's a layer of Thought and engagement that needs to happen. You know, it's not just that the writer gets famous. No, then for me, the writer must be protected. Yeah. yeah you know, the writer must be fought for, defended, yeah. and criticized. Yes, you know, when yes, necessary. Of But you need that kind of um, yeah. engagement. I'm just justifying my job. <laughs> Good job, and passionately. Yeah, yeah. Don't fire me. Kaya, <laughs> do you want to say something about that? Um, the thing I was thinking is the forms of criticism. Can be more various than we allow. Yeah. Um, if you made a radio program about three books that you loved and engaged with the work of the authors um, across a thirty-minute radio program, chances are more people than would ordinarily pick up a literary periodical would listen in and be like, "Well, that line of poetry you just quoted sounds interesting. You seem to like it, and you have an enthusiasm." And I think that speaking voice、mm. that you have from someone talking about work and being enthused about it. Is a form of criticism. I think there are different. I think、uh, the review is, when practiced really well, is wonderful as a as a mode of criticism. But it's not the only one, and it's certainly not the one that's necessarily easiest to access. So I guess interviewing people is one way. Making podcasts is another way.、Um, otherwise, thinking about how. A work of criticism might be presented, especially now that there are so many means by which we can present criticism、yeah. in ways that engage people slightly differently than criticism has in the past. Yeah, I suppose in the way that those poets have expanded readerships,、mm. that perhaps other poets who are very much restricted to the page or certain types of, I don't know, more in, in, more insular sort of readerships.、Mm. That criticism then should do the same thing through other media, through other forms. Is that essentially? I think so. I'm struck by kind of interacting with people、um, through teaching, 
some of my students have come to poetry through some like crazy, <laughs> crazy means of like following this one Tumblr page that posted up yeah. uh, like <clears throat> Anak Matava poems every now and again, and then following another one, and then reading this like one essay. And yeah. I feel there are so many like tunnels you can go through yeah. on online. Um, and so learning has opened up, the, the pathways to learning about things have opened up. Yeah. And as critics, perhaps we can go to some of those places too, yeah. or try to, yeah. um, and not just the like five mm-hmm. magazines that we love or whatever. Yeah, thank you. Um, I want to pick up on some of the things you said. Um, for example, when you were talking about... Um, this group of poets, you asked the question, what is the big essay about this poet? And that is the interesting statement, big essay. I wonder if maybe we need to have more ambition to write an essay that's not just big in size, but big in quote-unquote ambition, big in formal desire to do something interesting, to engage the poets in their own form, perhaps. Um, And also, as you are talking about various different magazines, it seems like with new forms of social media, the hierarchy, while still there, is not as relevant as it might have been in 93 when I first came to US. Um, and that gives an opportunity to step into the room and to change the conversation without worrying as much about hierarchy if the ambition of a big affair is there. I think that's right. I think like in a big essay also in the claim, not like long, but in the claim to, and not, yeah. and not even like, and I don't even like those critics who take it upon themselves to anoint people. Mm. But at the same time, I think that there is something that you can say about the work that is being done or the kind of ambition of the work that feels really important. I mean, the other thing that I want to just tie into what you were saying, because I think it's exactly right. And I think critics are, I mean, who, who am I even talking about when I say critics anymore? Like, who are the critics? Like, what generation are they? Yeah, they're not going on Tumblr, you know, and they're not saying... So, yeah, like, I definitely think there's a lot to say about, like, finding other forms of, of, of reaching readers and discussing the work. But there has to be, like, there has to be a division between criticism and engagement. Yeah. That feels really important to yeah. me. Like, our job is not to be publicists. Yes. Our job is not to sell books. Yeah. Like, our job is yeah. to um, surface those ideas, interrogate those ideas, yeah. and to produce the best prose we can. And to produce something that stands next to a work of art, I yeah, think. Yeah. And so that's not, you know, it has to feel solid and, and beautiful in its own right. Yeah. I guess here again, the work of art is the most important part. Yeah. Because I, I would like to, have, to read a critic who I know the poet they're writing about will be forgotten in five years. But the style and the essay of the critic that's been written will be remembered in 200 years. Ilya, I'm right here. <laughs> I'm sitting right here. <laughs> I'm teasing you. I'm saying I'm right here. Um, yeah, you know, but that's right. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, like the review outlasts the book. Yes. Yes. I mean, it raises a really interesting question about authority and how the critic positions himself, maybe, in trying to uh, to appeal to other broader readerships, um, to speak to to more people, to work with poetry that maybe isn't necessarily invested in a kind of speaking to a specific tradition, but actually speaking more broadly out to uh, to a readership. And I'm going to th- uh, throw a slight uh, question, which is quite different than what we're talking about, and then we'll open out to all of you, because I'm sure you have lots of things you want to ask. Um, but there's a, there's a debate going on, I think, in this country, um, and probably elsewhere as well, um, about 
poets that um, whose work is not particularly being valued by certain gatekeepers, certain people who are critics who are uh, trying to decide what the value of work is that is actually accessible to the public. So, and I know you all know what I'm talking about, but this sort of question of poetry that seems to prioritize uh, social engagement, identity politics, sort of like the poets that we've been talking about already, versus um, a very different kind of poetry that has seemed to prioritize craft over identity, right? These are the kind of two polar uh, opposites that we are being given um, in a way that is actually um, being falsely created, in fact, by critics. And we don't seem to have enough critics maybe who are trying to explain how those things are actually uh, related or can be related. And, and so it seems that we're becoming more polarized. So I just want to ask um, where you think the critic engages with readerships, between the readerships and the poet, in a kind of interaction with social questions, political questions, mm. and how the critic is, negotiates those. Mm. I think it's difficult. <laughs> um, but I, one way one way is to read somebody's choice of form as a political whatever kind of position they take there has been something invested in that decision um, and thinking about that I suppose is important and then yeah I guess going back to the thing I said earlier about not dismissing out of hand that which sits outside of one's own aesthetic benchmarks I think sometimes when I think about the politics of an act to open out what the work is doing and who the work is addressing, yeah, I think about that when I'm thinking, oh, I don't like this, Why isn't this isn't good. People are telling me this is good, but it's not good. <laughs> um, I really have to interrogate what is good in this context yeah. um, and what are people finding in it that I'm missing yeah. um, and where does the politics of their choice to present in this way come into my decision about the work being bad or good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I couldn't say better than that. And I, but I do think that um, one of the things I think about a lot in my job is trying to learn how to read outside my own taste and trying to think about what that means and trying to... Um, right, because I, and I don't think that critics sitting down and dismissing something even know what they're doing. Like, I don't think that they have no vocabulary for the pleasure this is really giving other people. You know, they can say that I know this is making people happy, but they can't fully understand it. And I think that that's something about a muscle that, that they've let languish. Um, you just have to read widely. You really have to try to read. If, if, you're, if you're interested in criticism, you have to look at all kinds of things. And, and I don't understand why literary critics have so much trouble doing this. Like, I think the era has passed, you know, the Pauline Kale days where, like, now movie critics review high and low, you know, and they can, um, TV, music, like, you, you know, like, this is something happening in every other discipline, but we seem uniquely hung up on it. Yeah. And conflicted by it and insecure. Insecure yeah. and threatened by yes. it, too. That's, they seem yeah. threatened yeah. by these other forms that people yeah. like and are popular. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's, it's a matter of doing the work. And I also do think about, like, you can do the work and you may not like it and you can fully express that you don't like it, but get in there a little bit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have to say I have very, very little patience uh, for anybody who begins a sentence, but this is political, mm-hmm. simply because it's incredibly privileged, incredibly vast European and North American thing to say. Nowhere else in the world do people say that 
there is such a genre as political poetry. You don't get to say it in the rest of the world. It, you only get to say it in a privileged society where you can afford to say, ah, that's political, and close the door and watch TV. In most of the world, they don't have the door or TV. Okay? Um, so, anytime somebody says that, it's just boring. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I'm sure you're, you've all been waiting so patiently and listening. You must have things that you want to say. So please put your hand up if you do, and we will get you a microphone. Um, I'm Alice Hiller. I co-founded a magazine called Harana with Romelin Ante and Kostya Solakis. Its first issue was in, um, just came out recently. It came out in, uh, we've got another one coming in June. Our brief is for poets who write in English as an additional or parallel language. So that really opens up the field. We have submissions from around the world. It's Harana Poetry, and I'd, I'd really ask you to check it out. As the reviews editor, I write five, four to 5,000 word reviews, which means that there's really space to talk properly about the poet. And I'm also running a series of interviews through my blog about saying the difficult thing where I interview poets and again it's about a 5,000 word interview we talk in detail about their work I'd say 75% of the poets I interview are poets of colour and I find that about 5,000 words is a magic level it lets you really involve with the poet and give the poet the space to talk about their poetics and their intentions so please Check out Harana. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Okay, Nasa, do you have a question? Yeah, although I don't know, you might have. Yeah, sure. Um, I might have gone first. This going after that. This is going to sound weird because I wanted to complain about the. I mean, we're not we're not here to market. I agree with that, but at the same time, there's this. There feels like there's this increasing pressure on the amount of space um, for the kind of work that we're doing. So, so there's an idealism behind wanting to be more Baldwin-esque and to stand outside and speak broadly about the state of the art. But, there, but I also feel like I'm getting a message from some of the bigger outlets, the mainstream outlets, for criticism that there isn't room and that we need to be brief and we need to deliver news or a kind of newsworthy version of the work. And, and, and I feel like there's dual pressures there and I'm, I'm still trying to work that out and I'm just wondering if you can speak about some of those things as well because like yeah I'm, I'm gonna now have to start pitching at Harana and get like the space <laughs> yeah um, excellent <laughs> okay so just yeah. to, if anybody didn't hear the question um, it's really just um, the question is essentially about the length of reviews so Nasser is sort of saying and I think this comes out of the conversations we had earlier yeah. about how some particularly newspapers are moving to much much shorter reviews so like roundup reviews or 300 word reviews in brief reviews um, as opposed to longer reviews, but of course newspapers struggle to have the length of Harana four or five thousand word reviews. So 
is the question sort of aesthetically, how does one balance or manage the, the length of review if it is very short? Yeah, and how do we... I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, that's good. That's okay. Good. Yeah, how do we... Well, I think it's more for parole anyway, probably. Well, sometimes you can. Sometimes you just have to do what you can do in the space that you have. But I always love having, a, you know, we, in newspaper talk, we call it a peg, right? It's like the news peg, like this is why this book is being reviewed now. I love having it just because it's anything else to bring people into the book, you know? Any other way. I mean, I, 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 I forbid myself from using the phrase, this moment in any of the reviews, but it's, it's like that, like this book and this moment while you should read. You know, I don't like doing it, but you know, you'll catch me every week doing some version of that, you know, because we want to bring people to our work, to our reviews and to this. And so we want to frame it in a way that there's always something that's going to be news because people are news. Language is news, you know. Um, and I do think that, yeah, like it's, it's impossible. Say you have like, you're doing a 600 word review or a 700 word review. You can't do it all, but you can always gesture, you know? And I think part of that's also as a writer is making sure that as you're doing it, it feels important to you, you know? Like you're not just serving them, but there's something else that you want to say or you want to do in that space. You can swivel around and you can find a way to, to do that. Um. I'm a little bit confused and I feel like there's some underlying assumptions and some binaries which are sort of coming, coming across in some subtext. One of which was that um, the sort of mainstream critic will have a standardized approach to criticism and that they will have a certain identity. The second assumption that I sensed was that some, a writer, say, or critic of a BME background would inherently have a, a diverse perspective and something which is not standardized or mainstream. And I feel um, the way that these two identities are being constructed are perhaps perpetuating a narrative Secondly, in sort of moving away from this a little bit, because I feel like it's confusing a lot of things and it's actually enforcing ideas of race and, and separation, um, is that um, by looking to review and criticize writers on the basis of color, identity, religion, uh, are you not also actualizing them as writers of different backgrounds? Are you not creating a sense of difference by looking at them through that lens? And I want to know, I mean, how, how this space is navigated in sort of, sort of the ways, because I feel like a lot of like, um, sort of innovative, like Guy Miller's collection, for example, um, and there, there's, so many, there's so many avenues um, that have been uh, addressing this, and, and I feel like the sense of just standardizing identity in terms of like, here, this is mainstream publishing and criticism, and this is everything else, just sort of get in. Uh, I don't know how helpful that is. I think there certainly isn't homogenizing, um, and, and I think our, our critics probably, um, certainly the way that we've set up the scheme is to create a space where people can talk about identity and the ways in which it's, it's sort of thought about or handled uh, within critical culture, but also by poets in the work. Um, and the work is prioritized, in, in a sense, over the biography, over poetry or poets as a kind of anthropological subject. Um, so we're working very much against that idea. And I think that, um, so Kaimel is a really good example. I remember reading some very good reviews of Kaimel's work, and then there was a, 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 quite a bad review of the book that focused entirely on this sort of language of otherness being attached to the ways in which um, there was a certain kind of cultural identity that Kai's work was being entirely inscribed in, which seemed unfair and actually untrue. So I think that um, what we're attempting to do with the scheme is to allow 
a space for thinking about identity, but thinking about it in really complex terms. So not just the sort of very obvious fetishized version of race that we often get in public discourse, but actually a sort of the ways in which um, we're all multiple forms of overlapping and layered and moving identities that are highly kinetic. Um, And that sensitivity within the work is what I think needs to be brought out by really strong criticism. And that's what the critics, I think, are all attempting to do in, in very different ways. So probably that answers that part of the question. Is, does, that, does that answer the question? Yeah. Okay. Parvul, did you want to share? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't hear those binaries or assumptions. Actually, what I heard was much more what you were saying. It's just that we're talking about making the space more inclusive for critics to bring in much more complicated discussions of identity. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's certainly my interest, and I think that's something that I've, I've heard all of us trying to say. Yeah. And, yeah. I think we're responding to a reality where um, the reality is that poets of color do tend to be reviewed in certain kinds of ways, um, and that also as subjects and poets walking through the world who are, you know, literary culture is a reflection of the reality, hopefully, that we live in, um, and so in a sense, the correlation between the lived experience of people of color mm-hmm. and the ways in which writers are handled in literary culture is, and critical culture um, matters. You know, it matters to the way that we exist. Um, and that's, that's really important to fix um, in the way that we intellectually draw ourselves into a, a shared community of thinking. Just to illustrate it a little bit, um, you can go online to New Yorker and you can look up a review uh, in New Yorker of the famous whiteboard. And the first paragraph is going to be about the work. You can go online in New Yorker and look at the review about the Port of Color, and the first paragraph will be about what university they went to, what kind of credentials they have to justify being reviewed within the New Yorker. So... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, were there any other questions? Um, My question is about segmentation in publishing platforms. I'm thinking specifically of, I know Viet Nguyen has, for instance, Diacritics, which is part of the LA Review of Books, but is separate and for reviewing Southeast Asian um, creators, for instance. Um, I'm the co-editor of Stairs and Whispers, Deaf and Disabled Poets, right back, in which um, we as disabled editors are trying to sort of mainstream deaf and disabled languages, right? And I'm thinking about the publishing space, in terms of seeing, oh, these are written in other languages or other modes or come from other countries and thinking of, you know, separating publishing spaces into quote-unquote mainstream and quote-unquote specialized. And I was wondering if anybody had any thoughts about the, how that is going and, you know, the way forward, if there are any, if there's, you know, some things you think should happen in that sense. I hope I'm making myself clear. <laughs> I mean, I only have a very inchoate feeling about this. Is this I think that some of the conversations that are happening in some of those specialized blogs and places feels really sophisticated and really interesting and mulchy. And, and I just, I wish I could see it bridged into some of the mainstream discussions as well. And that's my only desire, yeah. right? Because it feels so specific, so localized. Um, and a lot of that nuance gets lost when the discussion is being, hap- like being hosted in a more mainstream place. But I wish there was a way that we could, yeah. you know... Yeah. Um, and probably yeah. that is even less bridged between uh, in the UK than it is in the US yeah. I think because of the, the strength and prominence and overlap of academia um, and, and the ways in which those communities tend to overlap with criti- critical communities as well more broadly. It's not necessarily the case here. We have quite a few journalists who, who I think, it's probably, I don't know, maybe that is a question actually. 
are there is there the balance between journalists and academic critics or critics that are based in academia? Hmm. What is it like in the U.S.? Is it because here I think it's quite uh, there's a quite a separation. Yeah, and it feels really separate. Yeah, and it really feels like. Um, a lot of those conversations aren't reaching people that would love to be in on those conversations. Yeah. So be super interested in it, but it's not, yeah, yeah. it feels very siloed off. Yeah. Great. We probably have time for one more question. You have depicted the um, changing in the newspapers, particularly local newspapers, which you talk primarily about America, but I suspect it's occurring in other parts of the globe as well. So that's the reality, I suppose, that we're, we're living in as people, are, as people are partaking in their news and media in different ways. It's the reality of sort of um, shrinking populace who want to read newspapers, at least in the physical form. So I think about things that I, I know more about rather than poetry. For example, sport and business. So if I'm partaking in sport and business, increasingly I'm listening to podcasts because it's, it's convenient, it's accessible, and there's different people. And, and the quality of reviewers there seems to be, seems to be growing exponentially, um, depending on what you, what you listen to, of course. So for somebody who's on the outs on the kind of periphery of poetry, um, very much so, is there a sort of um, range of wonderful podcasts out there where there are reviewers who perhaps aren't so dependent on national local media, but can put themselves out there? Yeah, there absolutely are. I mean, you will certainly know the, the American <clears throat> ones, but the British ones. Maybe certain. We have obviously a lot of poetry culture on BBC Radio Three and Radio Four. Mm. In various forms, yeah. it's not really reviewing, um, and there are podcasts that do some reviewing, but not not perhaps as much. I mean, the Poetry Book Society have a a, a podcast vlog. Yeah. Um, Jen Campbell does, and there are various poetry magazines that do occasional yeah. podcasts, which veer yeah. into the terrain of a review be- mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they become engaged, perhaps on one book over a long period of time. Yeah. Um, there are various. Uh, there's one called Rusty Sonnets, which is interesting as a model for poetry reviewing, which Niall O'Sullivan does, in which he talks just about one poem for an hour. Um, and, yeah, I, I think that there's something special in that, of taking a book that you appreciated or didn't appreciate and talking about, uh, not necessarily just one poem, but talking about it. I think there's a, there's a lot of space there to develop different modes of criticism. Yeah, and maybe it's something that our, and I think you were saying this before, that our attachment to the review as a form can change and has to change. And I'm thinking about the podcasts and poetry that I like to listen to. The LRB has a great series of conversations about sort of more established poets, but each one is, each episode is devoted to one poet and sort of talking about the life and the work. And I mean, it's, it's as interesting and sort of multivalent as one of the best reviews, you know? So that form of, that form is something that I think, yeah, we shouldn't be overly sentimental about as long as the work of, you know, deep thinking and listening is happening. Yeah, okay. Last question. It's ironic that we're doing this in here when the London Review of Books is kind of named and shamed in your statistics. Yeah. Uh, so maybe a sustained effort with them would be a good idea because as a subscriber, it drives me completely bananas. Anyway, my question, sorry, my question is, have you thought of doing this for editing as well as reviewing? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and editors are so important um, as part of the ecosystem, you know, to put it that way, of, of, of where books get reviewed and everything else and who gets to review. Um, I think that would be much more complex in some ways. There, it's a, obviously a much a sort of uh, a much more difficult uh, platform to kind of break into. Um, change doesn't happen very quickly is something that I've personally noticed anyway, uh, especially with some of the bigger um, newspapers. 
But um, but I think that's a, and there are examples, I guess, in in publishing, book publishing, where some of those editorial roles have been um, developed uh, for people of color. But um, yeah, I don't have a good answer for that question. But thank you for raising it, and I think that's I think that's something that definitely needs to happen. I guess what I would say is that I don't think lasting change will happen. Um, until there are more editors who are either hugely sympathetic um, and, and proactive, absolutely, um, or they are also people of colour who are sympathetic and proactive. Yeah. Did, I, I might just chip in oh, on yeah. that loudly. Um, that, uh, <laughs> the, our critics, are, our 18 oh, yes. now 12, are increasingly adopting editorial roles themselves. They're yeah, right. being invited onto boards. Um, they are contributing editors um, to magazines like Ambit, Oxford Poetry. Um, and uh, so I think we didn't set out with this intention, but we are almost inadvertently uh, sort of nurturing a new generation of uh, commissioning editors at the same time as yeah. critics of colour. So I think that change is, yeah. is going to trickle on and on um, in uh, years and decades to come. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sarah, for saying that as well. Um, at the back of the report, you will see all the bios of all of the, the critics and all of their amazing accomplishments are listed there. Um, before we end the panel, I also wanted to mention that the um, Dave's report, uh, Dave Coates' uh, report, which is a long kind of a qualitative analysis of the stats, um, is in the Brixton Review of Books out today or here today anyway on your chair. So make sure that you read that too for a fuller discussion as well of the things that we've been talking about. Please join me in thanking our excellent panel for their conversation. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.